America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on India, a strategic partner of the United States. Our guest is Subramanyam Jayshankar, who has served as the Minister of External Affairs since May of 2019. Previously, Minister Jayshankar served as India's Foreign Secretary. During his diplomatic career of almost 40 years, he was India's ambassador to numerous states, including the US and China. Minister Jayshankar is a member of India's Upper House of Parliament, the Rajya Sabha, where he represents the state of Gujarat. He received the Padma Shri Award in 2019 and holds a PhD in International Relations from Jawaharlal Nehru University, Delhi. He recently published a book entitled The India Way, Strategies for an Uncertain World. India is the geographic anchor of the Indian subcontinent which borders the Indian Ocean in the south and the Himalayan mountains in the north. From antiquity to modern era, scores of indigenous rulers and empires governed large swaths of Indian territory, developed rich cultures, and cemented India as a center for global maritime trade. The British Empire consolidated political power over India in the 19th century through arrangements with local rulers. In 1947, after years of peaceful struggle led by Mahatma Gandhi, Britain departed India, partitioning it along religious lines into the independent states of India and Pakistan. The bloody partition precipitated the fraught and complex India-Pakistan relationship. The two countries fought four wars before the end of the 20th century. India and Pakistan clashed directly over the disputed region of Jammu and Kashmir in wars in 1947 and 1965 and in a border conflict in the heights of Kargil in 1999. Pakistan continues to host militant and terrorist groups that fight Indian security forces and conduct acts of terrorism in Indian-administered Kashmir, as well as other parts of India. The Pakistan-based lashkar e taiba carried out terrorist attacks in Mumbai in November 2008 that killed nearly 200 Indians over the course of three days. The United States established diplomatic relations with India in 1946 and recognized its independence in 1947. Despite India's proclamation of neutrality in the Cold War and leadership in the non-aligned movement, the United States and India collaborated on issues of higher education and food security through the 1950s and the 1960s. Yet the relationship suffered setbacks. During the 1971 war that established Bangladesh, formerly East Pakistan, as an independent state, the United States supported West Pakistan while India supported East Pakistan. As tensions rose between India and Pakistan, both countries pursued nuclear weapons outside of the International Non-Proliferation Treaty and declared themselves nuclear states in May of 1998. India's acquisition of nuclear weapons exacerbated the already strained U.S.-India relationship 
but the relationship improved at the turn of the 21st century, in part due to economic advancement in India, growing distance from Cold War-era policies, mutual concerns about a rising China, and shared goals in the fight against international terrorism. President Bill Clinton visited India in 2000, and President Bush lifted all sanctions imposed on India for the 1998 nuclear tests in September of 2001. In 2005, President Bush announced that the U.S. would cooperate with India on civil nuclear cooperation, despite the fact that India had not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, heralding a new era of trust and confidence in U.S.-India ties. Later that year, the United States and India signed a new defense framework and drafted the India-U.S. Civil Nuclear Deal legislation, codifying the establishment of civil nuclear cooperation between India and the U.S. In 2008, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice signed the U.S.-India-123 Agreement for Civil Nuclear Cooperation, which laid out the specific parameters of the cooperation. Today, the U.S. and India share robust diplomatic and cultural ties. The United States is home to a thriving Indian-American diaspora of 4 million. India and the United States are strong trade, security, and defense partners. Ministers of State and Defense from both countries collaborate closely through the 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue, and they work together with regional partners Japan and Australia through the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or QUAD. In January 2021, India began a two-year term as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. India, with a population of 1.3 billion, is the world's most populous democracy and a massive emerging market. It holds the world's fourth-largest coal reserves and is bound to play a vital role in overcoming the interconnected challenges associated with health security, food security, water security, energy security, climate change, and disruptive technologies. We welcome Minister Jay Shankar amid evolving security dynamics across the Indo-Pacific region and as India and the world struggles to overcome and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Minister Jay Shankar, welcome to Battlegrounds. It is great to see you, and I should tell you that the opportunity to work with you and our friend Ajit Doval was really one of the highlights of my time in Washington. You're, you're looking well, and thanks for joining us on Battlegrounds. Well, thank you. Uh, you're looking well, too, and uh, it's good to be here. I'm speaking to you from New York. Uh, I'm, I'm, here, uh, uh, I'm here for two days. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, probably first time after COVID uh, started, uh, on my way after this to Washington. Uh, so uh, so there's a, there's a lot of our relationship on my mind as I speak to you. Well, I think if COVID-19 taught us anything, it's, it's that you know, challenges and problems that develop in one part of the world can only be dealt with in an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. And you know, many of us here, all of us here, I think, in, in America have been watching the second wave, this devastating wave in, in India. Our hearts go out to our Indian friends and I just wondered, as you're having your discussions here, what what do you see as as the lessons from this struggle that we're still in the midst of, and and um, and what should the world know about India's experience? What more can other countries do to to help uh, India and the world overcome and recover from COVID nineteen? I know this is a this is a 
a topic uh, in one of your chapters in your in your excellent book, The India Way. And I wonder if you just share your thoughts on on how do we recover from this trauma uh, of the past year? Well, uh, you know, uh, the way uh, things are in India right now, uh, we were hit by a very devastating second wave. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really uh, the, the virulence of the uh, strains of the virus uh, this time were far more uh, than the first wave, uh, which is why you had a, uh, you know, a much uh, higher uh, case load as well as uh, much greater fatalities, unfortunately. But uh, uh, look, uh, at the end of the day, the, the big takeaway, which is your question, is uh, when you have a global uh, challenge, a global problem of, of this scale, uh, the, uh, the only way out uh, uh, is is global cooperation, uh, global global uh, mitigation in a way. Uh, so uh, uh, we've we've of course uh, been dealing with this challenge. Uh, uh, you know the the uh, the hospitalization issues, the oxygen issues, the uh, the beds issues, and and these are things which. America knows well because you know you went through it uh, uh, as well last year, including in the city uh, where I am in uh, New York. Uh, so uh, you know, so when when people look at the at the television screens uh, and see what's happening in some foreign country, uh, I think there needs to be that realization that uh, this could easily happen to us. In many cases, it has happened to us. Uh, and uh, the right response is therefore to to help each other out. And I am glad to say we have seen a, a tremendous outpouring uh, of international uh, support and solidarity uh, at this time. But you know, one one is the 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 public health, the 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 uh, humanitarian uh, immediate medical response, if you would. But I think there are larger uh, issues for 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 the world order. For, for global politics in a way. Uh, today, clearly, we all need to think very much more about health security. Uh, I would argue that our sense of national security has actually uh, widened as a consequence of the pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we today, uh, whether it is medicines, whether it's vaccines, whether it's even, uh, you know, last year it was masks and PPEs uh, in, in some countries, uh, I would say even food, because the supply chains when they were diverted as has made people anxious. The second is, uh, uh, I hear this term strategic autonomy increasingly, this time from the West, uh, in Europe, for example, which is, you know, that for essential things, we need to be self-sufficient, or we need to de-risk uh, our exposure, uh, that we shouldn't be over-dependent on Single geographies or uh, or one set of supply chains. So, I, I think the the post pandemic conversations. In fact, even as the pandemic is going on, the conversations are beginning to change towards more resilience, more reliability. How do you de-risk uh, the world? Uh, and uh, uh, to my mind, uh, uh, it it really makes an argument for what I would call decentralized globalization. Uh, that you have different centers of production, uh, you have uh, 
uh, the the assurance that if something God forbid goes wrong somewhere, uh, the world will not then um, be be so completely threatened uh, uh, as the way we have seen uh, really in the last uh, year year and a half. Uh, there are of course in addition digital lessons, but you know that's that's a whole subject uh, in itself. You know, I found your view on on globalization and and India's role in the world really fascinating in in the book. And uh, you wrote something like, um, uh, you know, as, as Indians prepare for for greater contributions, you should rely on on your own traditions uh, to to equip India for facing the tumultuous world. And and uh, and throughout the book, you explain how India's past, especially the colonial experience, left an indelible imprint uh, on how India's leaders view your nation's role in the world and influences your approach toward toward the global economy, uh, towards geostrategic competition, alliances and partnerships, and, and just multilateralism uh, broadly. Uh, and the one chapter, I think, on the uh, Mahabharata uh, was was very, very interesting as well, where you use you use one of the two ancient or, or you know, uh, Sanskrit epics of, of ancient India as a metaphor, really, for India's approach to the world. So I know it's tough to condense, you know, into a, to a short answer in an interview, but could you explain this theme to, to, to our audience? How does India's past shape India's leader's view of India's role in the world? Well, uh, look, uh, my central thesis is that uh, India is a, a deeply pluralistic society. Uh, and uh, has a, uh, has a very open, very positive view towards engaging the world, uh, and that it must do so uh, by uh, by really, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, falling back on its uh, traditions and history and culture, uh, so that people uh, intuitively understand the challenges of today. Uh, and the reason I picked the epic is, you know, most most Indians are very conversant with the epic. So the method, you know, it's it's like uh, asking somebody in the in the Western world uh, if you give them analogies. I mean, you speak of the Trojan horse. Uh, now, uh, people know exactly, uh, you know, what what uh, or if you say the si- you know, a siren, a siren song. I mean, they they know what you're talking about. Uh, so. Uh, the the uh, to a large extent i think uh, there are changes you know there are uh, uh, conversational changes in india because there are changes going on in india uh, and uh, it's important for people to understand that these changes can be a source of uh, strength or better understanding uh, of what is happening in the world we are uh, you know as a deeply pluralistic society we are intuitively a very uh, international society uh, that you know this term the world is a family is very deeply embedded uh, in in uh, Indian thinking uh, and uh, uh, a lot of the challenges of today the you know the interplay of powers that uh, their relationship the interdependence the constraints on power uh, uh, for me an important question ethics you know how much does ethics uh, does ethics matter at all? And if so, uh, what is the role of ethics? I mean, uh, you you would perhaps in today's world talk about branding and reputational and soft power, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, ethics is is at the heart heart of uh, that. 
Uh, so it's an attempt really to use these analogies to uh, both uh, make Indians understand the world, as well as the world understand that there are great traditions of statecraft and diplomacy. And uh, I would say almost, uh, you can say, uh, uh, multipolar uh, politics in India, uh, which, is, which is very, very appropriate for this day and age. Right. Well, uh, Minister, I know we had, we had long conversations about this, about really our approach to a free and open Indo-Pacific. I remember, I think it was my first day or, or one of my first two days, maybe, uh, as I unexpectedly arrived in Washington, that I had the opportunity to host you in my office. And and uh, we, we took out a map and we talked really about how important it was to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific as an alternative to a closed authoritarian model. And, um, and, and I, it was clear from that conversation that that it was in, in U.S. interests that, that India have a, a more uh, a stronger voice, an even stronger voice than, than it had in the past uh, because of our shared values, because of our shared principles. And, and, and um, I wonder if you might talk about, about your vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, and then maybe also talk about this crisis that we feel in de democratic nations these days, right? There's, there are doubts, uh, I think, across the free world. Uh, about the effectiveness of democratic processes and, and institutions? Well, uh, look, uh, let me start with the last observation. I don't know if there are doubts in other parts of the world. I want to tell you very bluntly, there are no doubts in India. I mean, we Indians are extremely confident about our democracy. Uh, we we uh, believe that uh, that's really the, the, uh, the political system uh, uh, and the value system that uh, suits us. Yes, because as I said, uh, it captures our, our fundamental diversity and uh, the, uh, the uh, culture of really reasoning and, and coming, coming to positions and an acceptance of you know, uh, what, what the uh, rules of the day uh, threw up. So uh, over the last uh, 75 years, I think we've held multiple elections uh, we had peaceful transitions of power. Uh, there are, uh, you know, elections at different levels. Uh, one test of which is, of course, that uh, if you have changes uh, in the in the party uh, in power at different levels, that itself is proof that democracy is working. And I don't think anybody in India would trade democracy for an alternative uh, form of governance. Uh, so uh, it has its challenges, it has its complexities, but uh, I do want, uh, because I, I read about this mostly uh, uh, in the, I would say, Western uh, uh, political science or uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, intellectual discussions. Uh, uh, there could be these, you know, uh, some doubts there, but I, I do want to uh, make very clear that's not the case with us. Yeah. The uh, larger issue of you know uh, how how does Indo free and open Indo Pacific work out? Look, first of all, Indo Pacific. Uh, I I think the period and and I've dwelt dealt uh, on this at some length in my book. The period when we treated the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean as two separate arenas that's now behind us. The world's changed. The United States has changed. The number of players have changed. The seamlessness of these two oceans is evident, uh, whether it's politics, whether it's economics, whether it's trade. Uh, so now the question is, if 
uh, once you accept there is an Indo-Pacific and there are multiple interests at work in determining the character of Indo-Pacific, uh, it is very obvious that Indo-Pacific is central really uh, to the prospects of the world, to the welfare of the world. It's important that those countries uh, who believe that it should remain open, that, you know, that decisions about the Indo-Pacific should be taken on the basis of rules or respect for international law, uh, that uh, you know, we, we conduct each other in a way in which uh, our uh, collective interests are best served. I, I think that's the broad thinking. Uh, a lot of countries uh, agree on this. Uh, some of them, like India and the US and Japan and Australia, have gone to the extent of actually creating a platform where we discuss uh, uh, issues of shared interest and cooperate on that. Uh, I think we do a lot of good for the world. I mean, to me, uh, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific is very much uh, part of doing global good. Yeah, I, and I think it, this the quad format, which which you know, it pre-existed the Trump administration, and we worked on it. I think. Uh, uh, I think very effectively uh, initially in the Trump administration, really throughout the administration, uh, I think was galvanized in large measure, wasn't it? By the by, the competition with China, would you would you talk about really how you view the threat from from really the Chinese Communist Party's policies? I, I think all of us have seen that the COVID nineteen crisis it seems to have catalyzed geostrategic competitions, and you you saw it quite closely there as as we saw. Uh, People's Liberation Army soldiers attacking Indian soldiers on the line of actual control, but that's been matched by aggression, as you, as we all know, in the South China Sea and the threats toward Taiwan and in the Senkakus and and various forms of cyber threats, the economic aggression toward uh, toward Australia. So, how do you see the trajectory of the competition with China, and what more can the free world do, really, to 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 uh, uh, to confront this aggression and to promote? A free and open Indo-Pacific, rather than uh, rather than allow China to promote this authoritarian mercantilist model, and and it seems as if they're endeavoring to create servile relationships uh, in the region. Well, uh, look, uh, I would uh, obviously uh, perhaps uh, analyze that. Uh, you know, I mean, there are different ways of looking at it. Okay, one is a kind of interstate analysis, uh, if you would. Uh, and uh, uh, in the interstate analysis, uh, if you have, uh, you know, a, a sharp increase of power of one particular state, uh, there are consequences uh, in international relations. It's not, uh, it's not new. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, another way of looking at it, of course, is that, you know, different countries have different challenges. Sometimes, uh, uh, in international relations, it's very common for countries to cooperate uh, in, uh, you know, in wherever their interests converge. Uh, you, you, you know, it would not be for the first time, nor the last time. Uh, that's another way of looking at it. Uh, obviously, all of us have uh, values and beliefs. And we discussed some of them uh, before. Uh, and uh, the basic thing about values and beliefs is they are values and beliefs precisely because you, you think that's the right way to go. Uh, so if you and I think that's the right way to go, it's natural that we would have uh, a certain bonding uh, in that regard. And when we look at the world, we would intuitively tend to uh, find common ways of addressing, uh, uh, you know, a global global challenge. I would, I would quite honestly 
prefer to see, and I say this as someone who's been practicing diplomacy, still continue to do so uh, at a political level. I think a lot of how we uh, deal with the world, because at the end of the day, there is something called global good. There is a global commons. There is global politics. Uh, I am right now in the city where the United Nations has its headquarters. Uh, so, and United Nations as these, you know, as the centerpiece of uh, of the world order, uh, does represent uh, a shared desire uh, to to promote global cooperation. So, I I think it's important for countries who who uh, think similarly on key issues of the day, who find uh, that their interests converge, uh, to find ways of working together. And I think that's really what's happened in the case of the Quad. I mean. Uh, it, it, today, it's, we are discussing, for example, vaccines or uh, supply chains. Uh, during your time, we were discussing maritime security and uh, connectivity. Uh, there are a lot of other issues which have come up in between uh, technology issues, uh, you know, critical resources issues. Uh, this is what world politics uh, is about, which is uh, nations trying to find, uh, you know, uh, common ground and uh, working relationships. We, we know, of course, these problems don't don't <laughs> don't respect uh, countries' uh, borders and, and boundaries. And so it's important for us to work together on these cross-cutting issues. And I, I think, of course, in connection with the Chinese Communist Party's aggression, we have to really defend against it and deter further aggression. But also we have to strengthen ourselves. Right. We have to uh, we, we have to make sure that, that we are as strong as we can be, I think, socially, politically, economically. And you mentioned the quad format and and the importance of working just broadly with like minded countries. What would be top on your agenda? What more can we do together to build a better future? Uh, and to strengthen ourselves so we, we, we can ensure our competitive advantages remain our competitive advantages into the future. Look, again, I don't want to make this about country A or country B, however big the countries may be. Uh, uh, I mean, to my mind, this is the big issue, okay? The world's not gonna be the same after the COVID, whenever that after is. Uh, it's not going to be the same because uh, we are, as I said, uh, all of us in different ways are going to worry about uh, our international exposure. Uh, historically, you know, when times are good, you tend to see international relations as endless opportunities uh, sort of waiting to be exploited. When times are tough, you realize that those opportunities come mixed with a lot of risks uh, which take place and we're going through one of them, which is the pandemic. So as I said, what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is we need a better world, a safer world, a less risky world, something which by the way works for everybody because that too is an issue. You know, uh, If we construct a world order uh, in the name of globalization, but it works for some countries at the expense of others. It works for some people in some countries at the expense of others. We're going to have, uh, frankly, dysfunctional international relations and dysfunctional societies. We've seen that in the last uh, uh, decade. So I would argue that uh, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, international equity and fairness, you know, these are not just noble principles. They are practical common sense 
it's like creating a broader stakeholdership in the world so that the totality of the world is is uh, uh, better balanced uh, and then you apply that uh, in different ways i mean uh, we are going through a pandemic uh, today uh, okay the key question the number one question on everybody's mind today is covid uh, and uh, the uh, the worry which people have and i've heard this expressed by many countries uh, you know do, do we have accessible affordable uh, you know vaccines now we can't have a world which is part vaccinated and part neglected because that world's not going to be safe uh, so how do we you know get through uh, the global challenges in a in a global way i i think that's the big question and uh, here the importance of countries willing to harmonize their national interest uh, with global good if if uh, countries especially large countries pursue their national interest disregarding everything else i think the world's going to have some big problems you know i i think this competition that we found ourselves in doesn't have to foreclose on cooperation on the issues that you've mentioned and and in particular i think we're facing these interconnected problems of 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 uh climate uh and environment uh which is tied to energy security issues of energy security and and as you know with with just the vastness of, of India and the size of the population it's also connected with food security and water security and health security so what what is top on your agenda in, in connection with the not just the quad format but just multilateral cooperation across our free and open societies how can we work on these problems together what's india's perspective on this interconnected problem set well uh you know uh there is uh one one part of what we have been brought up you and i to think about as globalization okay that's investment trade finance uh, that's what we were told was at the heart of globalization i would argue uh that has not worked for the world as a whole okay it's worked for some countries as i said and some people in some countries i'm not against it i'm just pointing out the limitations of the current uh, model if you would but i want to draw your attention to the, to my mind the real issues of globalization and what is really global what cannot be stopped at the borders a pandemic cannot be stopped climate change is not limited to one country terrorism if you you know you 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 had an experience i mean if you have terrorism in afghanistan or pakistan or iraq it's not going to stop there it's it's going to uh, spread beyond borders so to my mind the real global challenges are the you know these examples pandemics climate change terrorism uh, and how do we find better solutions because if the problems are multinational or international but we are conditioned to think national you know you 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 can see the the uh, challenge out there and uh, i i do think uh, in a way uh, the the Uh, the devastation of the pandemic is going to compel us to look at this very urgently uh, i would hope we uh, pay the same kind of attention to climate change and we get serious 
uh, about addressing it. And when I say serious about addressing it, to my mind, people keep talking about ambitions and commitments. I rarely hear the people who speak ambitions and commitments speak about resources. Right. Uh, you know, you are a military man. You you don't draw up a plan and not have a uh, understanding of what the resources are. The plan isn't worth anything. Uh, so, uh, and and uh, uh, the third issue is is really terrorism. I mean, you uh, you've studied it. I I uh, by the way uh, was uh, uh, refreshing my mind on your book uh, and. Uh, I, I, you know, with, with your experience, especially in dealing with APAC, I mean, you, you see uh, the, the challenge uh, that we have that, uh, you know, if, if, we, if we overlook or excuse or justify uh, terrorism, uh, uh, you know, uh, accept it as some kind of, uh, shall I say, uh, unorthodox statecraft, uh, then I think we are setting ourselves up uh, for a, for a uh, really a, a huge challenge, and that's unfortunately been the history of the world uh, for the last forty years. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if I could ask you more about uh, how you see the jihadist terrorist threat uh, in in South Asia. Of course, I, I think this is a disastrous policy, this complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. I believe that the very small numbers of troops that we had there were essentially an insurance policy, insurance policy against the Taliban, again, exerting control over large portions of Afghanistan and declaring the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And what's astounding about it, Minister, to me, is we, how self-delusional we've been. I mean, we conjured up the enemy we would prefer in Afghanistan, a Taliban that would share power, that would be you know, more benevolent, I guess, and, and or less brutal. And and one, uh, a Taliban that has a bold line between it and other jihadist terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda. But you're very familiar with this, the terrorist ecosystem that exists uh, in Pakistan in particular, and the danger that that poses India, as India has been on the receiving end of many uh, terrorist attacks since 1947, right? It's been an arm, terrorism has been an arm of the Pakistan state's foreign policy, essentially. Uh, mm -hmm. since 1947. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the trajectory in connection with uh, the strength and danger associated with these jihadist terrorist organizations? And, and what is India doing to protect itself uh, from uh, from the threat from groups such as Lashkar e Taiba uh, and, and others that are determined uh, to commit mass murder as an element of uh, their uh, foreign policy? Uh, and and uh, and and organizations that are sponsored uh, by the Pakistani state. Well, look, uh, this is, you know, at one level, it's it's such a common sense issue. At one level, because there are there is so much, I would say, uh, I don't know, vested interest. I I don't know what to call it. I mean, the ability to delude ourselves, as you said. Uh, you know, uh, now, in many ways, people hoped that 9-11 would provide defining clarity. Uh, in fact, very frankly, uh, uh, I was immediately after 9-11 uh, for some years dealing with our uh, U.S. policy at that time. Uh, and I, I think there was a, a, a willing, uh, shall I say, uh, willing uh, acceptance uh, of, of a narrative uh, from Pakistan, which everybody knew uh, was, was uh, you know, 
was uh, not justified by the ground reality. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, uh, to the extent that uh, that country was even proclaimed uh, as by uh, one of your predecessors as a major non-NATO ally. So, uh, you know, what, what happens is uh, we, we struggle, okay? We struggle between the, the clarity of analysis. Uh, uh, we know the truth, okay? It's not like the world is collectively stupid. Uh, somewhere, I think we, we temper our analysis uh, and the clarity of our convictions with some kind of, uh, I would say, habits of the past, uh, a degree of risk aversion, looking for easy answers, uh, and that leads you down down a certain path. I mean, if things are uh, what it, what they are today in Afghanistan, uh, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, it happened because uh, in the last twenty years, uh, a series of uh, uh, decisions and conclusions and policy uh, judgments were were made, and they all, uh, you know, uh, took took us in a certain direction. And once they take you in a direction, you say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm in it, so I'll have to." This constrains my options, and that's the way it is. And you know, uh, I I sort of in a sense bring you back to one of your other books uh, dealing with with Vietnam. I mean, which is every decision that you take locks you in uh, or at least constrains your next set of uh, decisions. So we we have, I think all of us struggle with it. We have what we have. Uh, now, I mean, to me, as a, as a practical person, the question is, uh, you know, what's, what's the best that we can do in this given situation? Uh, I do believe that uh, uh, for all its limitations and mistakes, and there were many, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the gains of the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Uh, both of us have been there. Uh, uh, you know, uh, an entire generation has grown up in Afghanistan uh, with a much better uh, life than they had in the 20 years before that. Uh, I think that's uh, something worth uh, protecting, defending, nurturing. Uh, you you know, it's it's important that we understand. Uh, that Afghanistan too is a pluralistic society with a diversity of ethnicities, viewpoints, faiths, uh, uh, that you know, minorities are given the due, uh, that women and children, their rights are protected, uh, that we, we uh, you know, all that was built up by the entire world, the United States most of all. Uh, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, uh, they are of great value uh, and uh, uh, that uh, they should not be uh, lightly sacrificed at the you know expediency of uh, of uh, politics of the day I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the gains in Afghanistan it, it really is a transformed society based on what it was certainly under Taliban rule from 96 to to 2001. And you know what? What was so lamentable, I think, about, about this this deal—the deal made under the Trump administration and then affirmed by the Biden administration—is that it disadvantaged the Afghan government on the way out, right? With uh, you know, forcing them to to release you know five thousand of some of the most heinous people on earth, uh, not demanding a, a ceasefire, uh, and then the constant you know the constant statements 
to Ashraf Ghani, President Ghani, for him to do more for peace. Well, how about saying something to Haibatullah Akhenzada right, and, and the Taliban? So what I'd like to ask you, Minister, is what more can the, can, can the international community do, can India and others do to support the Afghan government and, and to, to deny the Taliban uh, you know, the effort of turning the clock back uh, to, to 1996? And, and uh, I, I fear you know, a return of the civil war from 92 to 96. It could be devastating for the people of Afghanistan, but also for the region associated with a refugee crisis uh, if, if that large-scale violence returned. But what more can be done at this point in your view? Well, I think obviously a lot needs to be done uh, in talking to foreign ministers in the region, beyond the region, uh, including in Europe. Uh, I, I hear their concerns. Uh, I, I think people do worry about uh, what would happen if things go badly. Uh, in terms of what can be done, look again, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Afghanistan, like every other society, has to uh, be allowed uh, its right to decide its future. But having said that, how do societies decide their future? There's got to be some process of legitimacy, right? I mean, you and I have elections. Uh, okay, now uh, I, I grant you maybe not everybody has necessarily the same uh, standards and practices and culture, whatever it is, but every society ultimately has some form of legitimacy and some form of uh, selection of authority and transition of authority and replacement of authority. I mean, that's, that's what uh, civil society is all about. Now, uh, the, uh, the de debate in a way today is uh, how can we, if even assuming that you have parties who have uh, different interests and uh, uh, shall I say uh, different uh, beliefs, but it cannot be that uh, somebody says, well, you know, I'm going to be the ruler because it's, it's self-evident and it's me. You know, there's got to be some process of uh, arriving at that. And for the rest of the world, some process of assessing that and uh, accepting that and underwriting. Uh, so uh, I, I, I do think that the world has a lot, you know, I, I believe the world has a lot of influence, uh, uh, which, which uh, uh, it can bring to play in a, in a positive manner uh, on what is what is. Uh, happening in Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, the, the uh, current system may have uh, its shortcomings. I mean, I think even they accept it. Uh, but uh, uh, the question is, how do you find an acceptable basis for, for who will govern uh, Afghanistan? I mean, some kind of acceptable basis has to be formed. It cannot, it should not just be uh, handed over without addressing that question to anybody. Right. And, you, and you know, obviously, it was, a, it was an ugly election in Afghanistan, the last election, but it was an election uh, nonetheless. And, and I think you're absolutely right. If there is to be some form of political trans, uh, 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 transition, uh, it has to be, reflect the will of the Afghan people in some way. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and of course, every country has different traditions and different ways of conducting elections. But 
but uh, but I, I, it is my sense from from my time in Afghanistan that the vast majority, well over ninety percent of Afghans, don't want the Taliban to come back um, because they know what the hell that it was to to live under Taliban rule from ninety six to two thousand and one. Minister, I wonder if you'd share your thoughts on the trajectory of Pakistan. There's been, of course, a lot of press coverage about uh, about talks now with the, the Pakistanis. Uh, this is, of course, of course, been and and it remains one of the most dangerous flashpoints I think uh, in the world. Uh, is is really Pakistan's hostility uh, toward India, the use of jihadist terrorist organizations against India as an arm of their foreign policy, and of course, uh, both your country and Pakistan being nuclear armed countries. It it is one of the most dangerous flashpoints in the world. What do you see as the future uh, of India-Pakistan relations? And, uh, and, and what, what's your prediction on these latest talks? And does this represent any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of hope uh, for a reduction in tension and hostility between your two countries? Well, look, uh, what I can tell you at this point of time is that uh, we had a uh, uh, agreement some weeks ago uh, between uh, Director Generals of Military Operation uh, that uh, we would not uh, uh, fire across uh, at each other uh, across the line of control, uh, uh, which which has seen a lot of that, uh, and it's seen a lot of that mainly because there's been infiltration uh, from from their side. So uh, so. Uh, the the basis for not firing is very clear because the reason for firing is infiltration. So if there is no infiltration, there's obviously no reason to to fire. Uh, that's a good step. Uh, but I I think there is there are obviously bigger issues. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know uh, uh, the two neighbors uh, have to find ways. It's not you know it's not a question of do we live with each other. I I think so. At the, uh, uh, you won't live with each other if you're agnostic about how you live with each other. Okay, uh, and you yourself pointed out that from forty-seven, part of the problem has been the use of uh, cross-border uh, terrorism. Uh, so uh, there also has to be uh, perhaps a, a appreciation of what the cost has been to themselves. You know uh, what it has done to their own. Uh, society and uh, uh, how how uh, you know uh, that has uh, impacted them. I mean, they need to reflect on it because they are doing it uh, to themselves. Uh, but uh, uh, I I think it's important right now for uh, if if uh, uh, there is thinking along the lines that there needs to be a better relationship with India. On our side, there's been clarity of thinking. And the clarity of thinking is that we cannot accept terrorism. We cannot accept that it is in any way legitimate uh, as, as, as diplomacy or as any other uh, aspect of uh, statecraft. So let us see you know, where, where, where uh, this progresses. Obviously, everybody hopes for the best. Right. And I hope that at some stage, the, the Pakistani people uh, demand more. You know, it's. I think what is uh, what's striking about the the situation is how the the Pakistani army over time has created this problem, and how, of course, the Pakistani people have suffered uh, at the hands of these terrorist organizations in this very dangerous ecosystem as, as well. Minister, you know, I I wanted to ask you about how you see 
political developments in your own country. I know you're not a partisan person. You've served with great distinction across many uh, against across many administrations. Uh, but there is there is concern these days in the midst of the pandemic about some of these uh, Hindutva uh, policies uh, that could be undermining the secular nature of Indian democracy. And of course, this is what terrorists love, right? This is what Jihadist terrorists love is they want to divide people and portray themselves as patrons and protectors of, of a beleaguered community or a community that believes that it is beleaguered. Uh, how do you see internal Indian politics evolving you know, really during this trauma of a pandemic and the recession associated with it? Uh, and, and, and are India's friends right to be concerned about some of these recent trends? Look, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, let me let me clarify uh, something. Yes, uh, I served uh, multiple uh, administrations, as you would call it, uh, uh, over a number of years when I was a, a civil servant, when I was a professional diplomat. I am today uh, elected member of parliament of a political party, the ruling political party, BJP. Uh, so uh, do I have a political viewpoint and political interest? Of course I do. Uh, and I am uh, hopefully articulate and expressive uh, about uh, uh, the, the interests uh, that I represent. Now, uh, in terms of, look, what you said, uh, I'd, I'd give you the straight political answer and perhaps a slightly more uh, nuanced uh, uh, societal answer. The political answer is that uh, in the past, there was a great reliance on, you know, what's called vote bank politics, uh, which is appealing to uh, to vote banks on the basis of uh, their identity or their beliefs or uh, whatever it is. And the fact that we have departed from it uh, uh, has been uh, obviously uh, a difference. Now, uh, India is a country of many faiths. We define, and, and faiths everywhere in the world are uh, very uh, uh, closely tied to culture and uh, identity. Now, in, in uh, our society, uh, we define secularism as equal respect for all faiths. Okay, secularism doesn't mean that you are in denial of your own faith or anybody else's faith for that matter. I think what you are seeing in India in many ways uh, 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 is the, is the uh, I would say, deepening of democracy, if you would call it a much broader representation uh, in, in politics and in leadership positions uh, and in civil society of, uh, uh, of people of people who are much more confident about their culture, about their uh, language, about their beliefs. Uh, uh, it is, and, and I would, I would uh, be very open about it. I mean, these are people who perhaps uh, are less, uh, uh, shall I say, less from the English speaking world, uh, less connected to other global centers. Uh, so there is a difference. Uh, and uh, I, I think sometimes that difference uh, is judged politically uh, uh, harshly, uh, and it is often used uh, to to create a certain narrative. Uh, the the larger societal explanation I would give you, which is at the end of the day, 
you know, we have, you, you, you've been to India, okay? I mean, we are diverse in every conceivable sense of the term. I mean, ethnicity, language, I mean, you name a parameter and, and you know, it's, it's a broad spectrum uh, sort of uh, uh, representation out there. But when it comes to, to any, uh, uh, I would say, uh, policy or uh, uh, application of that. And, and I'll give you an example. I mean, we are going through a very stressful time uh, right now because of the pandemic, okay? Uh, we are actually uh, giving uh, free food uh, uh, last year for multiple months, right now again, because of second wave we resumed, to as much as 800 million people, okay? Uh, uh, we put money into the bank accounts of 400 million people, okay? This is what this government did. Now, if you are, uh, you know, feeding more than two and a half times the population of the United States, and you are funding more than the population of the United States, and you are doing this, I mean, pretty much anonymously and impersonally in the sense beyond the name and the detail, the bank account of the person, you're not asking anything more. There's no uh, there's no criteria of uh, discrimination. So uh, I think when you come down to real governance uh, judgments, uh, you find that there is a difference between the, uh, the political imagery that has been concocted and actually the governance uh, uh, record uh, out there. So I think uh, you should take it for what it is. Uh, which is really politics at play. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. But I, I would certainly uh, see that very much as part of uh, a political effort uh, to uh, uh, depict our current government uh, in, in, a, in a certain way. And obviously, uh, I have a very profound difference with that. You know, of course, you may be aware we have our own divisions here in the United States as well, politically, which which I don't think ought to concern us in a democracy, right? And but as long as 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 the vast majority of our people have confidence, right, in, in their voice that they have in government and have confidence in the democratic processes and and institutions. Mr. Jay Shankar, I remember from our first conversation, we went to work on this Indo-Pacific strategy. You probably saw it declassified in the last few weeks of the uh, of the Trump administration. And in it, uh, we very we were very explicit about the importance of the relationship with India, the world's largest largest democracy, a country with whom we share democratic principles. And and um, and so, in in conclusion, what I wanted to ask you is. What are your thoughts on the trajectory of U.S.-India relations? What are the top on your priority list in terms of, of, of um, issues to work together on? We talked about these interconnected problems. We talked about how important it is for the solutions that we come up with to be, to be acceptable uh, to, to India, uh, acceptable to developing economies across the world. Um, what, what's the top of your agenda for the U.S.-India relationship going forward? Uh, I have a big agenda, so that's going to take me a long, uh, a long period to share with you. But I put it to you this way: I think our relationship has come a long way. Uh, it's today one of the major relationships of the world, uh, and uh, uh, my own sense is that uh, in Washington today, uh, there is a real appreciation uh, of the of the uh, potential of this relationship, what it can do. 
uh, and it's true of Delhi, New Delhi as well. Uh, so uh, the challenge for us, you know, keeping in mind a lot of the uh, issues that we've laid out, brought out in our conversation, impact of uh, uh, pandemic, rise of different powers, the fact that today we all recognize that you know, it's not a question of one or two or three countries who will decide how the world is. So the world is truly much more multipolar. And if it is multipolar, then it's all the more important for countries to learn how to work with uh, each other more effectively. And I see a big change in the American mindset uh, in that regard. Uh, so uh, I mean, uh, the, the United States, you know, has not only an enormous ability to reinvent itself. It also has a great ability to assess its situation and re-strategize uh, in a way. And I, I uh, do think today uh, that uh, when it comes to the big issues of our day, uh, maybe because we are pluralistic societies, uh, because we are political democracies, uh, because we are market economies, uh, that we, we have fundamental uh, convergences, convergences which are societal, convergences which are geopolitical. Uh, and I think uh, the challenge before us is how to translate those convergences into actionable policies. And that's really what uh, I was very uh, happy to work with you uh, during your tenure uh, as National Security Advisor in doing. Uh, and I certainly look forward to doing that with the people uh, in administration too. Well, thank you, Minister. Minister and Mr. Jay Shankar, what a, what a pleasure to see you again, <laughs> on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important uh, to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work. To hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.